From WPVM in Asheville, it's The Dirty Spoon. I'm Jonathan Ammons, with you today for a very special podcast extra. Back when this song came out in 2007, it's hard to think of a bigger indie band than Bright Eyes. They owned their own record label, Saddle Creek Records, releasing acts like Rilo Kylie, Big Thief, Cursive, and Spoon. Rolling Stone had just crowned lead singer Connor Oberst, his generation's Bob Dylan, and the band was on an international tour, hosting onstage guests like Lou Reed, Steve Earle, and Nora Jones. They toured with Bruce Springsteen and R.E.M., sung duets with Neil Young, and were hosting rallies for then-candidate Barack Obama. For an indie band in control of their own sales, they couldn't have been bigger. But after 2011's album, The People's Key, the band went silent. But don't be mistaken, Bright Eyes hadn't broken up, and they certainly weren't hiding out or resting on their laurels. In fact, they've been quite busy over the past decade. Connor went on to release several side projects, like a reboot of Desaparecidos, some self-titled material, and more recently, start a band with Phoebe Bridgers. But contrary to the way a lot of media talks about Bright Eyes, it isn't just Connor Oberst. Mike Mogus, the band's guitarist, is an incredibly prolific producer and audio engineer. He helped build the incredible sounds behind acts like First Aid Kit, M. Ward, Speedy Ortiz, and even the late Justin Towns Earl. He also mixed both Phoebe Bridger's albums, and even mixed a reimagining of Paul McCartney's new record. And then there's Nate Walcott, the keyboardist and trumpet player for the band. He's also been insanely busy. After becoming the touring keyboardist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, he started doing film scores. Perhaps you've heard his work on The Fault in Our Stars or Stephen King's The Stand. But beyond that, he's arranged for or played on a record on just about anyone's top 10 list over the past decade in a variety of genres. Did you like that last Angel Olsen record? He played on that. You like Beck? He's played with him too. Dawes, Portugal the Man, U2, Jason Mraz, Hamilton Lighthouser, Broken Bells, hell, he even worked with ASAP Rocky. But during the pandemic, Bright Eyes came back. Down in the Weeds Where the World Once Was is an epic return for one of indie rock's most pioneering bands. It combines all the elements of their past. Connor's Dylan-esque, yet emo-tinged vocals, the rock elements of Lifted, or the folk sentiments of I'm Wide Awake It's Morning. There's also hints of the electronic experimentation in Digital Ash for a Digital Urn, and pop sensibilities of The People's Key. But while the album definitely trods on some familiar ground, something about Down in the Weeds is just bigger. For a band known for having twists and turns in their albums, these songs still sound like Bright Eyes, but they are now filled with lush orchestral movements, cinematic string sections, and bold brass. And the lyrics have matured as well. It's just a really great record. Well, ahead of their latest tour and their August 5th show at Asheville's Rabbit Rabbit with special guest Lucy Dacus, I caught up with Bright Eyes' Nate Walcott. He was just getting ready for tour, a daunting task for anyone, but he was kind enough to take the time to talk to me from his studio in L.A. Here's our conversation. New album, new tour. What's it like... uh, coming back to these songs and to this band after such a long hiatus and such a long break? Well, good question because, you know, um, new, when you say new album, you know, it's more kind of like, it feels like a newish album because after, you know, um, you know, we put it out last summer. So, um, you know, having to take that, 
that another pause after putting it out um, was, you know, just a um, an interesting experience, and you know, having a little bit of distance from it. So, you know, in the last couple months of diving back into the new material, um, like from the new record, um, yeah, it's it's interesting to to approach it with a new perspective, which is sometimes you know ranges from, you know, um, excitement and enthusiasm to that's wow. That was an interesting decision we made. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, because we're we're obviously having to figure out how to do the songs, um, some of the songs from the new record uh, live. So yeah, you know, we're we're re digging into it in a way that we haven't in a while. So um, you know, because normally we would have done that. We were supposed to be on tour, obviously, all of last year. So yeah, um, that you know, perspective is uh, is interesting. Sometimes it's um, you know, you, you notice you are reminded of things that you sort of forgot about. And uh, sometimes it makes you happy and sometimes you're like surprised. Yeah. And that was, that was <laughs> cool. one of the things that I kept thinking about, like listening to the new record too, like how much the sound has matured, how much the um, Connor's writing has matured, how much like everything on the record is. It's mm-hmm. the same band, but a much more cohesive, experienced and mature band. Yeah. And, uh, and I wonder too, that made me wonder, like looking back, you guys are playing through, I'm sure all that old material from the earlier records, which were a lot of those were written when you guys were like 19 or 20. Like, what's that like coming back to those things and digging up those songs and revisiting that stuff after all this time? Well, that's kind of a constant process. So, you know, and it's something that we go through, um, frequently. So it's nothing too new. I mean, um, yeah, I just think that it's yeah. like that's something that like nobody in most of their other careers gets to do, you know. Right. You don't yeah. get to like dig back into the your thoughts and your your habits and your your art from your childhood unless you you have something like you guys have, which is this great legacy of these these albums and these songs. Yeah, I mean it's really fun because um, you know it gives you a chance to kind of um, approach things differently with a new set of. Uh, well, new set of many things ranging from, you know, equipment or technical knowledge or just, um, you know, an intuitive sense of what will make the most sense, musically speaking, um, on a variety of levels. So it's fun. And uh, I think it makes it really, you know, it makes it really interesting and um, gives you the chance to kind of, you know, make these decisions of, you know, how, how to what extent are we going to sort of honor this thing that was done 25 years ago or or revisit it start over and you know you know it could be anything from an arrangement in a song or parts or musical you you know any any number of musical elements um so it it, it keeps it interesting and it's fun yeah that's all that's kind of a constant um process any any time we go and start organizing some some shows and stuff yeah also i I have to wonder too because like like i said listening to this record it's it's a much more mature sound and not that the past sound was immature but in any way shape or form but i mean you guys have done so much work apart from each other as a band um you know i'm just looking through your your list of stuff you've worked with everybody from jay bennett to Angel Olsen to, you know, um, Phoebe Bridgers to 
Ryan Adams, like everything. And uh, I don't know, how is that? What are, You have to be going to all these other places and taking this experience and then pouring it back into the band. But it still sounds like Bright Eyes when you guys are together. And that's just a really interesting thing that it, I, for a band that's known for having a lot of twists in their songs, like this stuff still sounds like, like y'all. And I'm, I'm wondering what it is about the band, about you three guys getting back in the same room that makes these sounds what they are. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's kind of inevitable. Um, yeah. I mean, we, when we went about working on this record, you know, there was kind of an element of newness in approach and also an element of kind of trying to go back to something that is, that would be really familiar sounding. So, um, and I guess there was a combination of, sure, like all of us drawing from our um, individual outside experiences um, and bringing that in, but also, you know, kind of listening back to the, the entire catalog and, and kind of trying to incorporate some, um, a lot of those sort of really familiar sounds. Um, so, I mean, and so f- in terms of that, um, that newness, yeah, like we, we, all, we made this decision to write collaboratively in a way that we hadn't done before. Um, and so we approached this process in a, in a new way. And, um, you know. Um, how so? How did that work? What was it, the collaborative process? For example, some of the songs would start in a way like I would bring in uh, some ideas for songs, you know, just kind of, you know, it could be chord progressions. Here's an idea for a verse. Here's an idea for a chorus. You know, just the musical elements the basically like, like the building blocks. Um, yeah. So it wasn't just Connor bringing you guys like, here's a four chord song I wrote and let's write over around it. It was more of like, you'd pitch like a, a riff for a, a progression and then they yeah. start writing on top of that. Yeah. And so, um, and, or Mike would, you know, and yeah. that would, that, um, that yielded some interesting results, um, which, I mean, you, you would hear that in a song like Pan and Broom or, um, or uh, To Death's Heart. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you could, you just, there was, so in that way, like some, there was like a, a slight infiltration of some harmonic colors that maybe wouldn't have existed otherwise. Yeah. And, um, but it's pretty subtle. Cause then on the other hand, we would try to really, you know, not take it so far outside in terms of the instrumentation and production that it didn't sound like bright eyes. So right. there was a little bit of new and the little bit of the old. And, you know, I think us, you know, and thank you for, um, the, for, yes, all of those projects that you, um, mentioned are, yes, certainly things, I've been involved with, um, you know, for me, I guess my f- focus more in the world of in the past, like 10 years in the world of writing for film and television and, you know, kind of delving more into the world of, um, certain realms of the, you know, the quote unquote classical, um, tradition, um, yeah. is in terms of, you know, my work as an, an arranger and an orchestrator, 
um, you know, that is for me personally, you know, an influence as far as like what I was able to bring into the band, um, you know, experiences with that stuff. And that's what makes, um, I think, being a part of this group so uh, exciting for me personally, and I think for all of us, because um, Mike's got his own set of things that he's super into and, and Connor does obviously too. And the fact that, you know, I think it's a band in a place where we can bring all of these things in. Um, it's a safe place, you know, it's, it's a safe zone for, yeah. for anything. And it's met, you know, with, um, you know, just open ears and open hearts because we've known each other for so long and worked with each other for so long. And that's what makes it so great. And then, um, you know, to get back, sorry, this is kind of a long winding rambling, <laughs> answer, but to get back to your point, I think, you know, we can bring all of this stuff in and then in the end, it's going to sound like bright eyes because we are who we are. And when we're together, our process kind of remains the same. Um, and it ends up sounding, fingers crossed, like bright eyes. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, um, to death's heart. And I think that's like a great example of like that one. And then I forget the track earlier on the, on the album that really kind of harkens back to, uh, the digital ash to a digital urn kind of sound with Mm -hmm. like incorporating electronics into it, but also like keeping it with a classic Americana sound and like blending those things together to where it's kind of the culmination of the, all the experimentation that happened throughout those courses. And that, sure. yeah, yeah, that, and that brings up the question of like, there's always a lot of found sound, kind of music, concrete stuff in here. Um, what's the story with that? How does that work? How do you guys build that stuff? Where does that come from? That's a good question. I don't. I just is something that's always been a part of the process, and I think it's uh, you know, something that we're all have an appreciation for. Um. um so, yeah, I mean, I think part of it goes back, back to like, you know, I, I remember, you know, I've heard Connor talk about um, how, you know, even as a kid, he would walk around with a cassette, you know, dictaphone and record um, things, uh, just, you know, sounds. And I think he was, you know, as you probably know, I think kind of incorporating a lot of that into his earliest recordings, um, you know, his four tracks stuff yeah and i don't know i i think we all just like that and um it's just become interwoven with the vocabulary of the band and um yeah yeah i i mean i i love it i i think it just adds a dimension to the the music that um is is uh it gives an abstraction okay. to it it seems yeah, like That's, exactly yeah, yeah. It, i guess that's it. It just, it adds a dimension, um, an interesting dimension to the music. Yeah. Well, I, I also have to ask you about working with people like Angel Olsen, cause she's one of our Asheville, you know, beloved sure. Asheville artists and yeah, doing the arrangements on all mirrors. How'd you get roped into that one? I think just through wrote a, uh, word of mouth. And I, I, I have been a fan of her music and I think she's just such a wonderful musician and artist. And, um, somebody from her camp reached out and I was so stoked. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of how it happens. Word of mouth. That was really fun to work, work on and, um, was grateful to have been involved. 
Yeah. And I think, I mean, just to give listeners to the, the perspective of like that, that bright eyes hasn't just been, you know, sitting on your asses this whole time. You guys have been like crushing it. When I look through like the, the lists of who you've worked with, you've worked with the shins, you've worked with Maroon five, you've worked with, um, Jenny Lewis, you've done broken bells, Ryan Adams, um, Mavis Staples, even man, that had to be an honor. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it has. It's wonderful to have been able to um, collaborate with all of those artists, and also, as I mentioned, um, you know, work on music for TV and film. Mike and I did the Stand last year, which kept us busy, um, you know, during the lockdown, um, and that was an ad- adaptation of the Stephen King book. Um, and, you know, I've um, been working on films on and off for the past 10 or 12 years or so. And that has been another sort of creative outlet and something that has really sort of provided a new and, you know, valuable perspective when approaching something like a Bright Eyes record. So, yeah, um, we all and, you know, Connor has obviously been making his um solo records and better oblivion and um mike's been um making and recording and mixing a ton of records too um and we've like i said we've collaborated on a couple of the scores i've done so yeah um we're busy and uh it's great and we're so you know fortunate to be able to um do what we love which is work on music yeah How'd you get into the film scoring side of things? Like what, what drug you into that? How'd you, how'd you get involved? You know, to be honest, mostly through Bright Eyes. Um, so the first film we did um, was because a friend of ours in Nebraska, uh, he wrote and directed a really wonderful film called um, Lovely Still and starred Martin Landau and Ellen Burstyn, um, who are incredible Um you know, they're, they're legends. So our friend Nick somehow got funding to make this beautiful movie and um, asked me and Mike to do the score, which we did. And that was in 2000, that was a while ago. That was 2008. Um, and that kind of, I wouldn't say necessarily opened the door for us, but it got us a little bit of experience. So then our friend, our future friend, at the time we didn't know him, um, uh, filmmaker named Josh Boone, um, also a big Bright Eyes fan, reached out. And we did his first film, which was called Stuck in Love, which was also a great, great film. And that came out in 2012. And that was really kind of what opened the door for us. Um, and Josh made a second film um, called Fault in Our Stars a couple of years later. And that oh, that's was... A, right. You did do that one. Yeah. I forgot about that. So that really helped because that was a very successful film. It was on, you know, it was a Fox film. Yeah. And um, I should say that is really what kind of opened the door for us. And I'm out here in LA pretty much full time. And it was something that um, I decided to kind of focus on a little bit more um, after Fault and Our Stars came out. Yeah. And, and so Mike and I have continued to collaborate um, on Josh's projects, which includes uh, The Stand, which came out last year. And then I've done a few films on my own um, in between those, um, including one called 
Come and Find Me, which stars um, Aaron Paul. Yeah. From- I mean, and that's got to be an interesting thing, too, getting to work in so many different genres doing film scoring, because, like, The Stand is a very different score than Fault in Our Stars, you know? Like, yeah. you're, you're working in very different genres a lot, I'm sure. Yes, yeah, and that is what keeps it very interesting and fresh. Yeah. So, um, and that's sort of, I mean, I've talked about it a little bit. I feel like the writing process for Bright Eyes, as far as when I was bringing in any ideas, I... I it definitely kind of my experience in that world kind of informed that a little bit in terms of yeah. um, thinking of it almost as like a score, but instead of it's like for a score that is for a movie that is just in our minds. Kind of totally. Like, I mean, you can hear it all over this record too of like, I mean, especially you just have these almost like orchestral epic cinematic moments, which I think those found sounds kind of play into as well and building these, soundscapes really totally yeah and i mean the intro um the opening i should say the uh of the record is you know certainly kind of setting a scene yeah was that where did you start picking up on on doing things like string arrangements and stuff because i know you're you play horns and and keys right are your primary instruments but yeah yeah piano keyboards, trumpet. Um, yeah. Um, that's something I just kind of fell into in a way because I, I was a trumpet pl- or I was a pianist first starting at age five and had a pretty, I don't know, I had a, I had a background in, in music theory and was really kind of into all that stuff at a pretty young age. Um, and then when I started playing bands in high school, I became, I don't know, I was just kind of the guy who made the charts because I don't know, I played piano. I liked writing. Actually, like I let I just really enjoyed the process, the physical process of sitting down with like blank manuscript and, and yeah. just just literally like putting notes on a page. Um, so I, I was kind of the person who fell into that role and the various bands I was in in high school. And then um, you know, one thing that really got me going was um, when Mike started to make records where budgets were a little bit bigger and by a little bit, I mean a little bit, but enough <laughs> to where you could hire four string players. Right. And, uh, um, you know, um, when he started to do that, he started asking me to um, to do the arrangements for that. Because I think, you know, when you're you're getting one or two players in, it's easier to kind of have them come in and kind of make it up as you go along if you need to. Yeah. But when the idea was to make, you know, come up with slightly more refined, bigger sound, he started calling me and this is maybe, you know, in like 2002 or three or so. Um, and I hadn't done a lot of string writing, um, but I, I had studied some orchestration and arranging in, in college, which I was, this was actually when I was still was in school. So yeah, I, I had some experience and I just got into it. And I so he started calling me to do it. And I was super excited to do it. I, and so all those, you know, going back to, you know, there's a faint record, uh, a record by our friend Jonathan Rice, um, Rilo Kiley's More Adventurous. Yeah. Uh, uh, a lot of these records were done in this period of like 2003 to 2004, where 
that's when I really started to get super into it. And uh, it's been a learning process ever since. And I'm still trying to um, constantly expand in that world. It's an, it's a, it's a constant process. Yeah. And now, you know, it's like, it's one of my favorite things is um, when we do strings in a, you know, our or- not just strings, brass, woodwinds, our orchestra sessions with bright eyes. That's, you know, there's such fun days. Um, we'll go into Capitol here in LA for two days and get, a, you know, 30, 40 piece orchestra. And um, we'll work on it for two or three months ahead of time. Um, but then when all those players get in the room together and you hear it, um, wow, it's uh, uh, one of my favorite things. And um, I'm so fortunate that we're in a position to do that because um, not many people can, you know, and it's very expensive right. and you have to have, uh, um, I don't know, I guess it's, it's a yeah. massive undertaking. Yeah. It's, it's a, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm just, I, I have a, I, I'm fortunate that we're, we're able to do that and that we do do that. Um, yeah. It's a wonderful experience. Yeah. And I was, that leads to the next question I was going to ask, which is how you guys make, make records now, like as a bright eye, as a band, I assume it's not just going into the studio and playing the songs you know, and it, uh, with the way that you guys build albums and with all those arrangements, orchestrations, found sounds, things like that, I assume it's got to be just like a starting it with a with a chord progression and then building up over time and then finding some other trick or arrangement that works or and just I know you had uh, um, Michael Harris mixed or engineered this record for you guys who's done, you know everybody from Vampire Weekend to Adele, Kamasi Washington, you know, he's just a, a killer engineer. Um, are you guys working in one studio? Or are you doing a lot of stuff on, in your own studios? Like what's the, what's the creative process like for that? Um, good question. Well, yes. Um, um, yeah, it's a, it's a long process. Um, and it usually starts with the three of us just kind of coming up, with the songs, the arrangements, production ideas for this last record that took, gosh, that took a whole year we, we, of working, not constantly, but um, on and off throughout all of 2018. We just, the three of us would get together at our studio in Omaha and, um, and yeah, hash out all of those details and then put the songs together and then, in t- 2019, once we had that kind of assembled, we scheduled a few sessions. I think only two. One out here in LA, which yes, you mentioned Michael Harris. He he is the house engineer at the studio that we worked at, which is called Vox, which unfortunately um, just closed. It was one of the oh, oldest wow. studios in LA. I don't think it was. Um, you know, I don't think they had to close. I think it was just sort of. A decision they made i don't know but um really cool studio mm. but we worked out there out here i say because flea and john were john theodore were um our rhythm section for the first session that's so that's right uh, flea played on this record yeah <laughs> logistically speaking um it made sense to do it out here so we found this really cool studio called box which i'd worked at before 
How did you get Flea on board with that? I have been a touring member of the Red Hot Chili Peppers since oh, wow. 2015. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I joined up with them um, for their last record, The Getaway. So that started in 2016. Last show I played with them was actually right before um, the pandemic hit, which was <clears throat> the end of 2019. Um, so that was a pretty constant um, thing I was doing throughout that though all those years. So yeah, Flea nice. and Flea, cool. We were. I didn't mean um, to sidetrack you there from the answering the the no, process of the making the records, but it, no, I, that cool. was just a, a weird rabbit trail. <laughs> yeah. So Flea and I. I mean, we were obviously um, have become good friends, and when we started working on the record, um, it came up in conversation one day with Flea and. Um, conversation just kind of developed pretty organically. And the next thing, you know, um, he was in the studio with us and he was really, um, stoked to to be a part of it and, um, brought a lot to it. And so did John Theodore, who, you know, is in plays drums with, um, Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah. We had a great rhythm section. So, um, and then we did another session in Omaha a little bit later in the year for second batch of songs. And then that's just, you know, that's kind of like, those are, you know, the live tracking, but then we will spend, you know, weeks and months really kind of shaping all of that stuff. Um, yeah. So the, the live recording that we did at Vox and the, at, um, for the second batch that, which we recorded in Omaha, you know, I mean, of course we're trying to maintain some element of, humanity and liveness and the live performances, but also, you know, pretty much everything is going under a microscope microscope and we're, you know, constantly sort of adding and subtracting and, you know, um, it's just kind of, all the songs are in kind of a constant state of evolution. And that's kind of the nature of Bright Eyes records. Um, So it's a combination of kind of all of those things, which is the, extensive kind of writing and pre-production and then the time in the studio with the rhythm section and then the sort of long and very fun and sometimes laborious process of this, you know, all of the arrange, arranging and production that happens after those sessions that, and then magically it shows up in, on your, on, on your, um, in your iTunes and your, <laughs> Spotify and uh, that raises yeah. a very interesting question. <laughs> Since we're, we're we're I've taken up so much of your time already, I'm, but my closing question was going to be: You played on the uh, notorious, notorious U two album, "Songs of Innocence," which did magically show up on our iPhones. <laughs> it's, it's, I have to say, it's so funny that you're mentioning all of these projects. Some of these are like, I literally like long ago you, memories. <laughs> If you, if you were to pick, I love all of these projects. Not okay. This not, not the angel. Uh, this the angel record does not fall fall under this umbrella. But some of these things you're mentioning, I I literally, I'm not trying to diminish my involvement or anything. I'm just you're, you're, you're picking these things that I I would go in. I I just was in the studio for a day or two, which right, I'm right. I'm very happy that. You, <laughs> You did your research, um, but um, and 
No, never mind. I'm just. I'm not, <laughs> no. So yeah, we did. I worked on the uh, the songs of innocence. Um, the, there was like a second batch of songs that were sort of like stripped down acoustic versions, but with with horns. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I know. I think I know where you're going. <laughs> I was just gonna ask, like, w- did you know that they were planning on putting that on everyone's phone when they were <laughs> making that? No, <laughs> that was obviously not something I was aware of. <laughs> I know. Um, I'd, no, I just had to had to bring that oh, one up. You know. <laughs> no, that was that was actually a cool project. That and a lot of these things, you know, it might seem like they're really disparate, sort of kind of non sequitur non sequiturs like going from one thing to the other thing to the other thing yeah how how would you jump from that to that and that to that you know the the truth is that there are through lines or constants with all of these things and it's such a small musical world and I, I think that's what makes it so cool and so fun and um I mean pretty much every single person we've talked about so far there's like one degree or zero degrees of separation so like um you know Brian Burton Danger Mouse. Right. Danger Mouse. You know, he was a producer for that U2 record. I've worked with him a lot on Broken Bell stuff. And um, Brian also produced the Chili Peppers record that I um, was the record that I went on tour for. Um, and so, you know, there is this sort of, there are all these overlaps that connects so much of the music in our, our world and our universe. Um, and I think that's what makes it so, so fun. So I, I would, I just um, thought I'd mention that because, yeah, because um, yeah, yeah it's, it is, it is interesting because you'd think you two, how, how would that happen? <laughs> the answer is, you know what? Everyone's uh, connected. Yeah. It's all, it's all kind of connected. And um, now um, the one that came out of left field for me that I noticed was ASAP Rocky. Yeah. Uh, same thing. Brian Burton, Danger Mouse. Oh, really? Oh, oh, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Man, that yeah. has to be fun, though, being able to do so much different stuff, too. You know, not just be pigeonholed into one genre or just one thing. You know? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, because I, I mean, I should mention, you know, I mean, by the first music um, that I loved and listened to extensively was um, jazz. As a, you know, I got into that when I was in probably like fifth grade. Yeah. And uh, I was kind of in some ways, primarily a jazz musician, um, throughout much of my early adulthood, that was kind of a primary focus, if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, of course. And, you know, my, here's a little known fact. My first real job was, I was the soloist in the Glenn Miller Orchestra. Oh, wow. Uh, so, which was a dance band. We would play four hour dances all across the country. I spent my first real job was touring with them 10 we went on a 10 month tour that's crazy month, two one week breaks we actually played i remember playing <laughs> Asheville, um the biltmore i was gonna say my my father was probably at that show because he was obsessed with the glenn miller orchestra well he probably came this yeah. was in late 90s i was yeah that was i think he probably was because that he had a uh he had a, he used to drive around this um red 1970s um, Cadillac Eldorado convertible was his wow. like his his midlife crisis mobile that he got you know and okay. he would he would drive around in that and listen to the same cassette of the Glenn Miller Orchestra over and over again all the time. No and, kidding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was fun. I love that music. I mean, 
it was a little, well, never mind. We won't get into it. But <laughs> yeah, I would. I I had the so I played like the sol- the trumpet solo on in the mood. Nice. nice. Um, I was I was nineteen, um, and I I left college for a year and did that gig. And um, wow, it was it was amazing. And um, what what was my point? Oh, um, so. My point is, I don't even know what my point was, other than to say that was kind of that's as much of my background personally that as much as you know my work in the sort of world of pop rock singer songwriters, yeah, etc. So um, and um, you know, I, I I guess it feels sort of necessary for me to be able to incorporate that um my love for that music whether it's you know john coltrane or thelonious monk or yeah uh, um you know i could go on and on it feels necessary to to kind of if not incorporate it at least sort of be able to um be involved with a wide variety of not just genres but kind of like endeavors like just musically speaking whether it's writing music for film or doing arranging or yeah writing arrangements and orchestrations or writing my own music uh, or you know working on i have got this ongoing project with my partner um becky where we're trying to finish it later this year um orchestral music for children um and um you know i'm something there's a um you know and i'm still kind of trying to stay somewhat um involved in the world of improvised music yeah um, and there's a certain amount of jumping around uh musically speaking that i think i feel is necessary and i think that is um you know just to kind of scratch those itches if you will yeah. so and I think that's something that we all share within this band, um, just, you know, kind of relate it with, um, to my bandmates. Um, yeah. you know, I think, you know, as Connor puts it frequently when he's describing it for him, he calls it, you know, uh, rotating the crops. Huh. So we all have different ways of doing that. And, and, uh, for me, that's one of them. I love that idea of turning the crops. I think that's a good lesson for any of us who work in the creative field. You do have to rotate your crops. You have to try new things. You have to turn things over. That's great. Well, thanks for sticking around for our conversation with Nate Walcott of Bright Eyes. An endless thanks to Nate for taking the time to talk to us. He did apologize after the conversation. He said he was super stressed trying to get ready for tour and taking care of a sick kid and felt a little out of it during the interview, so please don't hold any of those long pauses or ums there against him. I know getting ready for tour is insanely stressful. I've done it myself, and it is nuts. I'm just grateful that he took the time to talk to us during all of that. You can see Bright Eyes on tour August 5th at Rabbit Rabbit right here in downtown Asheville. They're actually touring with one of our favorites here at Dirty Spoon, Lucy Dacus. We've played a ton of her music here over the years, and I'm really excited to see them together at that show. And be sure to check out the new Bright Eyes record, Down in the Weeds Where the World Once Was, wherever you get your music. It's a truly inspired record, and it's a brilliant comeback for the band. 
The Dirty Spoon is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2021. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I record, edit, and produce the show and make some of the original music. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our webpage and marketing. Be sure to head to our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, to stream full episodes of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, read stories from the show, see the incredible artwork from our contributing artists, and to support us by subscribing to our Patreon. You can listen to our show live the first Saturday of every month at 11 a.m. on 103.7 WPVM Asheville, or you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts by looking for the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon. Face now, it just feels like another life.